This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. It is Jay Scott from the Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Good day to you. Hope you're listening and hope you're enjoying some good rock music. Today's guest is Christian Shields from Austin, Texas. He is appearing on the New Music Spotlight. A little background on my recent history with him. I was up late one night on Twitter and Mike from Keep Rock Alive, KRA underscore lives 2019 posted a song by christian called rock and roll and i was immediately blown away and we started talking through direct message and we set up this interview and i'm thankful for it and i'm thankful for him for doing this how you doing today christian i'm well how are you jay i'm doing good i'm doing good and once again thank you for appearing on the podcast. I do appreciate it, as I do with every guest. And we will start out the same way we do with a new guest, with the same question we always ask, and that is the essence of the show, which is like every great rock song has a hook that sucks you in. Every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band, or performance that hooked them on rock and roll. What hooked you? Well, for me, it would have to be um, Kiss. Uh, Kiss has always been my favorite band, and I would album or song. Uh, I always get flack for this because I was a fan of '80s Kiss first, and I think that stems from my mom when we were, well, with my siblings and I when we were kids. My mom used to drive around, and she used to have the cassette of the Smashes, Thrashes, and Hits uh, Greatest Hits compilation in her car. And we'd always, uh, she'd always put that on. But I remember she used to fast forward this first track. Let's put the X effect because obviously we were kids. I would say it would either have to be Heaven's on Fire or it would have to be um, Tears Are Falling, one of those two. You know, that's interesting because I am the same way. My, I, I was always aware of Kiss when I was real little because you'd go to the grocery store and you'd see the Kiss toys in the toy section you know the kiss phonograph or the kiss halloween masks 
in costumes. And I remember, you know, being in the cart as my mother would, you know, put the groceries on the conveyor and I'd see the magazines with Kiss on the cover. So I was always aware of them. And then I heard or I saw on MTV the unveiling of the um, of them taking off the makeup on late. I think it was on like a Monday or Tuesday night with Kiss and they unveiled themselves for the Lick It Up album and I saw the Lick It Up video and there was Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons and there was Vinnie Vincent and Eric Carr. So my first introduction to Kiss was the non-makeup era and of course then there was Heavens on Fire with Animal Eyes and Asylum and I that was that was great. And I had to go back to their catalog and listen to their older stuff which I appreciate way more now than I did when I was younger and I was growing up. Um, but that is interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's, there, there was that era where, you know, people like yourself and myself are more or recognize the non, you know, makeup era, not as much, I think as the kiss, but have more, I think more of appreciation for it. Yeah. I mean, I just, uh, I, I can always get flack for this too. I just think Paul Stanley wrote better songs in the eighties. You know, talk about the history of Kiss. I mean, they had some outside writers as well, right? I mean, you know, when you look at yeah, that. Desmond you know, Child. Right, Desmond Child. But even, like, I think the first song that Desmond wrote with them was I Was Made for Loving You off the Dynasty album, which was still, of course, the makeup era. And then there was, uh-huh. um, I think, Brian Adams wrote a couple songs with Kiss. I know, I think War Machine is one of those songs, that, which is on the Creatures of the Night album, was written by Brian Adams. Uh-huh. And of course, I think Diane Warren and there were other writers too as well. So yeah, I, I do agree with you. I always enjoyed the the Paul songs more as they went through the eighties. And I also think they had to do with Gene's focus on the band too. Gene was trying to be a movie star back then. And and I mean Paul right. Stanley even talks about this in his book and in other interviews that he was pretty much running the ship. Mm-hmm. So Kiss was your first introduction that hooked you on rock. Was there an artist that made you want to pick up a guitar and perform? Well, I think it was a combination, but I of like Kiss, Zeppelin, Sabbath, all that stuff. But I remember what made me want to pick up guitar was uh, my dad had a bootleg uh, VHS tape. If you remember VHS, of Kiss's concert, I think it was like September eighth, nineteen seventy seven, at the Summit in Houston during the Love Gun tour. Uh, and I remember just like watching Paul Stanley playing guitar. He would just strum a chord and point at the girl. And I went, I want to do that. Cause at that, at that moment I wanted to, uh, play guitar from just watching that. Cause I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Yeah. That was their peak era too. You know, when you talk about 76, 77 kiss, you know, with the big destroyer album and the love gun and rock and roll over. And then, you know, between the, the you know, bookend of that era was alive and alive too. You know, that really was mm-hmm. the, the, the prime era of, of kiss. And I, I, yeah, I've seen some stuff on YouTube of that era too, as well. And it's just, it's a whole nother level, you know, performance and, just um, a rawness to it. I mean, you know, I, I love, I'm a big rock and roll over fan, you know, because I love Take Me and I love Mr. Speed. But you know, that whole era mm-hmm. right there is just some really strong material. Yeah, I mean, it's just, just watching that. And then also there was another show I think we had too. It was, I can't remember the date, but it was on the Dynasty Tour. It was a show that they did in Largo, Maryland. 
And, uh, you know, even though, you know, just to backtrack a little bit, I did say that, like, you know, I think 80s Kiss started as a young kid. You know, obviously, once, you know, my dad saw that my brother and I were starting to get into music, he started showing us more of the Kiss stuff that he had, uh, you know, the, and then more, like, he started getting us into, like, Sabbath, Iron Maiden, Zeppelin. He started spoon-feeding us that stuff. And then as we became, you know, teenagers, we started, um, you know, discovering more music and, and, and going on from there. What was the moment when you wanted to write music, right? I mean, was there a song? Again, you know, you mentioned Kiss, you know, the wanting to play live and wanting to pick up guitar. But, you know, there's a difference between wanting to play and then wanting to uh-huh. write a song. Oh, see, that's a tough question. The moment I wanted to write a song. I mean, it has to be right around when I first started playing guitar. Uh, I wasn't, I was, my very first band I was in, I actually, I wasn't a singer. I was just a guitar player. And uh, I think I started, like, it was like 13 or 14 is when I started writing, um, you know, just basic, like, chord uh, patterns and all that stuff. Um, yeah, I would have to say it's, like, right around then, because I started playing guitar when I was 12. So it might have been, it's somewhere in that, in between there, in between 12 and 14. I, I'm not sure. Okay. But, you know, like when you started writing lyrics, was there any moment that you wanted to say, hey, you know, I, that really connected with me. I think I can do something like that. Lyrics? Uh, it'd probably be around that same that same era as well. Okay. Um, I can't remember what it was. I can't remember. Uh, it probably would be something from my first band, maybe a song that I had called Prisoner. Uh, like I said, I'm not sure. So tell us a little bit about your background. I mean, you've got this new album coming out in January, and uh-huh. you know what? What is the history of Christian Shields? Well, um, I grew up in Bork, Rhode Island. I'm actually not from Texas. Um, you know, throughout my teens, I played in the uh, two bands. I had a band called Only Ashes, that was the first band, and then then I had a band called Last One Standing. And then around 2010, I formed a band with my brother called Dreamer. And then uh, we went to New York to work on a record with a producer we had met. Um, and we we did that for like two two years. We got some, you know, label interests, but, you know, the band ended up falling apart. And we that was, you know, during that time we had, you know, open for some big name guys like Saving Able, Hollywood Undead, Hawthorne Heights, Candlebox. Uh, Lynch Mob, you know, George Lynch's band, uh, a bunch of band, a Saliva. And then after that, I kind of took, like, after that band disbanded, I kind of took some time off. I did, like, a, a singer-songwriter thing. Uh, it didn't really gain any momentum, so I kind of abandoned that quickly. And then uh, the same producer that I did that Dreamer record in New York, uh, he told, he had come back, he had uh, moved down to Austin and he was like, hey, you know, I haven't seen you done anything in music in a little bit because I was still finding my way. He's like, why don't you come down to, to Austin? You know, the music scene down here is great and you can come and uh, intern for me at my studio and, you know, learn the production side of things and, you know, you get a new project going. So we came down here, my brother and I, with a couple of friends in 2016, and uh, we formed a band at that point that was just called Shield. And it was very... Uh, like it was like alternative, like punk rock. Um, and you know, we toured on that pretty heavily, did some big gigs at like the whiskey, a go, go and, uh, a couple other 
uh, venues like Emo's Austin and stuff like that. Uh, we did that, and then, you know, unfortunately, band disbanded, you know, personality clashes, money, you know, anything that breaks the band up. So then after that point, I decided, now I'm, you know, 2019, I'm 28 now, um, but last year when that all fell apart uh, in 2018, I decided that I was going to, if I was going to do another music project again, I was going to work with uh, people that I wanted to work with. I was just going to do it myself. Cause I, you know, I had all these songs that I was sitting on that I had been writing plus new ones that, you know, weren't getting approved by the production staff that we had. And, uh, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to do it my way. You know, I'm going to pay for it all myself, you know, do it all myself, maybe hire some session guys. Uh, cause I got tired of the, of the band thing, not because I don't enjoy being in a band, but because of, you know, the personality, uh, conflicts sometimes. And I'm not saying that's all situations, but I'm saying for me, because, you know, what works for one person doesn't work for somebody else. And I just basically wanted to do this easy, most the easiest way and the most efficient way possible. So, you know, I did that. I, I basically, I met uh, Kevin 131 Gutierrez, who's worked with Shinedown, Madonna, Brett Michaels, Paul McCartney. Uh, I met him at a club down here in Austin. He was just hanging out watching the show. And, uh, we were talking and I told him, Hey, you know, this was shield was still going on at this point. And this was right before shield broke up. I was like, man, I was like, I might be, you know, looking to record a couple of my own tracks outside of this. You know, we were just talking football and, and uh, lo and behold, we ended up working together and doing a full record. And now here we are. That's awesome. It's a great story. Yeah. Where, you know, you. you know, you, you, you talk about, you know, being in a band, I, I used to live with a rock band in my early 20s, and I got to see, you know, the, the personality clashes up front. And, you know, when you're dealing with four individuals that are, are predominantly A-type personalities, right? I mean, they're all, I mean, they all get into music because, you know, they, they, they want to be front and center. I mean, even the drummer who's behind the thing, he still has his personality. The bass uh-huh. player does, guitar player does, vocalist, you know, of course does. How... When you have a vision for a project, you have to mesh that with other people's visions. What are the negatives and what are the positives when something like that happens? Well, uh, that's that's an interesting question. I would start. I'm going to start with the positive. You know, I would say collaboration is always good. You get another perspective. Um, you can get somebody who maybe you know a better musician in certain aspects than you that can bring some edge or something or some extra element to the table. Um, you know, and, and just to repeat it, I guess just perspective, but I would say negatives are, uh, some people being selfish and not putting the team. I always use terms like that, uh, putting the team first, you know, even though you're, or you're a band, you're a team, you know, you know, three, four five people working towards a common goal. So, you know, I would say the big negative is people not putting the team first. And then, you know, music, unfortunately, takes a backseat at that point. It's more or less a power struggle. And, uh, you know, you know, I get more writing credit. You know, I've seen it play out. We've seen it play out with, you know, A-list artists all the way down to, you know, garage bands. I mean, it's, it's the same all the way across the board. So it had to be fulfilling, you know, when you were putting together this project and the music that you're writing for this project is pretty much your vision. I mean, this is what Christian uh-huh. Shields wanted to put out. Is that a correct statement? Right. Yeah. 
So let's talk about the album. I had the you know fortunate experience for you to send me the tracks and hear it before everybody else does. And it was, like I said, like the song Rock and Roll that I heard blew me away and the rest of the record blew me away. I think, uh-huh. you know, my first, when I heard Not This Time, which was the is the first track on the album, yeah. I, I, I felt uh-huh. like there was a nod to Alda Nova. Is that correct? I, I felt that fantasy vibe to it. Yes, that was exactly when we did that did that track. Uh, Kevin uh, Gutierrez, the producer, he's a big Aldo Nova fan, and he's like the original version about this time, the demo, I would say was more similar to like uh, the Scorpions, like in that vein, like Big City Nights, like uh, uh, Rocky, like a Hurricane. But he was like, we need to make a riff that, like you know, everybody can air guitar, and you know, and he, he, you know, so he, you know, we kind of like listened to some other songs to get some ideas. And he's like, he's like, we should maybe do something similar to what uh, Aldo Nova did on fantasy on fantasy. And then we came up with that, you know, we came up with uh, that, that, that arrangement. And I think it, it's 10 times better. I agree. When I, when I first heard it, I had a smile on my face. I'm like, this is a total tip of the cap to Aldo Nova fantasy. And I enjoy it. Cause I love that song. And I really had a, a fond great, appreciation. Great song. Yeah. Walk us through the process of making this record, writing it, you know, demoing it, you know, walk us through how your vision was put, you know, coming out of the speakers at this point. All right. So I've always been a huge classic rock fan. My roots have always been in classic rock. My parents were always big classic rock fans. I mean, they listen to modern stuff too, but, you know, predominantly, you know, seventies and eighties is what we listened to in the house growing up. So I cut my teeth on that. So that's precursor to this. When I was doing the last project, uh, Shields is the last band I was doing. Um, it wasn't classic rock at all. It was very modern, you know, alternative. And not saying it wasn't something I wanted to do, but I felt like it wasn't like who I really was. Uh, you know, so I decided that when that project disbanded, you know, going back to like hiring the team that I wanted to work with, I wanted to get back to my first. I wanted to basically make a record with songs that are timeless, you know, and hawking back to that other, that podcast you did with, uh, yeah, Chris, I, I feel Chris like a lot Eagle. of songs yeah. now. Yeah. I feel like a lot of songs now they're they're not timeless. So like, and that's the thing, like, why does these songs, why do these songs from the seventies and eighties stand up? So I wanted to write songs that were timeless and I wanted to write stuff that was familiar, but I also wanted to write stuff that I wanted to listen to. I wanted to write stuff that I wanted to play. You know what I mean? I didn't want to chase trends. I didn't want to chase hits and all that stuff. You know, so I, I basically wrote some of the songs. I demoed some of them at home, demoed some of them at the, at the studio I was interning at. And then, you know, went into there and talked to Kevin with a vision and said, hey, I want to do do this record. And uh, a little funny tidbit, we actually had to pump the brakes on the record because at the time he was like, we need to find a singer. Because uh, he was like, your your vocals aren't up to snuff. It's not, it's not that they're not good. He's like, they're like a six. We need like a 10. So we put the feelers out for a singer. So I was open to that. I was like, whatever. You know, I wanted to make the best possible record possible because if it was the last thing I ever did, I wanted to go out with, with on my proudest moment, so to speak, and do stuff that I want. So and lo and behold, we didn't end up finding anybody. And I found, I, he ended up hooking me up with a vocal coach. So I took six months of vocal coaching to get up to uh, snuff to be able to, to sing these songs 
the, the vocals needed to be killer. We wanted to be completely over the top. We wanted to be completely raw and aggressive. And we wanted to go for it and not to put any bands down. But there's a lot of bands now that I feel they play it safe on their songs. They don't, they don't go for it. They don't do any, they don't, they don't do anything that's like that excitable for the listener. You know, I mean, when you listen to like Sebastian Bach, like he just, he just goes for it. You know what I mean? And you listen to those vocals and you're like, you're like, fuck yeah. You know what I mean? So we did that. And then, you know, we ended up uh, at the beginning of this year after I completed, you know, after I felt I was ready to come back in and, and kill it. We, we went in and then we started, we finished the two tracks because the record wasn't recorded all at once. It was recorded in batches of songs. So we stopped it literally after we had recorded two tracks, which were rock and roll and raise them up. And then after we nailed the vocals on that, he's like, all right. And then we did the next, next batch of songs. So we did three songs and then we did the final batch of five over the summer. So it was a long process over a year, but, um, I feel it was, necessary to get the end result that we have now you talk about that process being over a year when you think back to when you started with this vision that you had for this record to when it was completed how did you evolve as an artist during that time i would say i got better i had to i got better as a writer i got better as a performer i got better as a as a musician um i had to take a step back because I was working with, you know, other caliber people and I had to elevate to to meet their standards. So I had to, I had to work harder. I had to, you know, practice more, rehearse more. And I feel it it was highly beneficial. Um, If I didn't do that, I don't, I think the record would have been subpar. Did you find that you had music when you started that as you evolved as an artist, some of that music didn't make it onto the record because what you were writing as you know, as you were evolving, you were continuing to write and the stuff that you were putting out was better. Did you say, you know what, I'm not connecting with that stuff anymore. I want to pursue this newer stuff. Or did you rework some of the things that you were working on um, to, to get them on the record? Um, nothing was the started. Re- uh, we, we had to rework uh, two or three of the songs. Like not this time was one of the songs that was reworked. Without you was another one, and um, by the strings was another one that was completely reworked. So the, I felt that the hooks that I had in the songs were great. It's just some of the other stuff around it wasn't necessarily up to par. But like I said, working with Kevin, I consider a producer like a, a coach. You know what I mean? Their job, even though yes, you know you you're, you're, you hire them to produce the record. I, I look at it as more of a perspective of like, he's a coach. He's coaching you to be the best possible version of you you can be. There's an interesting history with the band Van Halen and how it, when they were recording their first album with Ted Templeman, uh-huh. Ted was concerned about David Lee Roth's vocals fitting in with the band with Eddie's guitar playing. There was a mm-hmm. moment when he was recording that album with them and he was producing that album that he wanted to replace David Lee Roth with Sammy Hagar, who just left Montrose. And this is in a book called Van Halen Rising, um, which is which is by Greg Renoff, which is an amazing book. It's about Van Halen's history prior to their first album. And he talks about mm-hmm. the work ethic and the hard work that David Lee Roth put in to his vocals 
to stay in the band. And that was, you know, uh, an amazing aspect of the story about Van Halen. I actually did not know that. That's interesting. I have to read that book. But that's basically, you know, to, 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 to make a similarity between the two situations. Is basically, the record wasn't getting done unless I found a singer or unless I put the work in with the vocal coach. I mean, that, those were the two options. Yeah, that's, a, that's, that's pretty cool, man. I mean, that you really, like you said, man, you went for it and you were able to produce. I would say that, like, you know, adversity is a good thing. Because when you overcome it, you always come out better. Well, you always grow from adversity, right? I mean, you know, you, you learn from the tough times. You learn from that adversity that makes you a better artist. It makes you a stronger person. It makes you able to, you know, rely on that experience of getting through adversity to get through any future tough times. So it, it is very important. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean... I think without adversity, life would be pretty boring. I mean, I know that some days it sucks. You're like, oh, man, I'm having a bad day. But, you know, there's always something, there's always a positive to be taken out of that. Um, you know, I, I, try to, I try to look at the bright side of things or try to look at, you know, I try to look ahead a little bit. If there's some things like going down just, just, to, um, just to keep my head up, so to speak, just to see what's next on the horizon and, and to move forward. You talk about the classic rock influence that you have, and you, know, you mentioned Scorpions, you mentioned Kiss. When you were putting together your vision for this album, what things did you want to take from? What things did you allow yourself to be influenced in your writing and your playing? Were there particular albums? Were there particular bands? I mean, outside of the ones that you named, you know, how was that inspiration there for you? Well, the inspiration... From, from albums or bands, I would just say it's just the, I wanted to capture the element of arena rock, like all these guys have, or stadium rock on a record. You know, I wanted it to feel very energetic, like those records. I wanted it to feel very three dimensional. I didn't want it to sound like, you know, background music. I wanted it to be, you know, I wanted to write anthemic songs, songs that like you're saying it by the second chorus or, you know, songs that you can, you can feel and, and relate to. And I didn't want to write uh, negatively. All these guys wrote very positively. They wrote about, you know, good times, you know, women, all that stuff. So I wanted to keep it very bright and, and fun. And I mentioned that in a couple podcasts prior to yours with the band Kodiak about how, you know, music that they're producing is like that era when it was fun you know the van halen era of music when it was about the fun it was about the party it wasn't too serious enough where you know you'd have to think about what you're hearing you're just out there rocking out with your fist in the air and you're having a good time so the new album like i said very impressed with it rock and roll um was my first introduction to you which if you haven't heard it yet you know, this is for my audience. If you haven't heard it yet, you, you got to check it out. It is a awesome track. It, it's got a great hook. I don't know. I know when I first heard it, I pretty much played it straight for like two hours. A great song. Yeah. Not this time. Another great track. I was really impressed with Lie to Me and By the Strings too, as well as we move forward with the record. You know, talk about those songs. How was the inspiration for those and how were those put together? Well, Lie to Me, uh, was a, a song that was written about how like 
I want I also wanted to keep the songs very simple in meaning. I didn't want you like you said, not put that much thought into it, but I, I wanted you to be able to get get exactly what I'm talking about right away. A lot of me is basically just about like how a lot of people are being very misled now and you know, I just wanted to write a straight ahead groove track where it was just like, All right, man, I get this and then by the strings was basically written about uh it's about this girl that uh, I was really into and she led me on for a while. So it, that's how that song came to be. You know, we've all had one of those. Correct. Absolutely. Then there was uh Can't Get Enough, another strong track. Here yep. comes the man. Um can't get enough is another rocker too as well that I really enjoyed. Oh yeah, we we when uh, can't get enough. Originally that song, the dem- that's another song that got reworked. The song was kind of like in, in a blues feel, kind of slow uh, song, kind of similar to I don't know if you're familiar with the band Feel Heart. Yes. Do you know the song uh, Sheila? Yes. So it was kind of like in in that vein, but. Kevin, he was like, this song's got so much energy. He's like, we need to, we need to kick this up a notch. So then we basically double timed it and uh, sped it up and turned it into that. And uh, you know, the song's basically about how you know you can't get enough of uh, a certain someone. So, and then here comes the man. I would say I try to write a political track based on obviously identity politics and everything that we got going on in 2019, but it just made sense to what I see going on around me. And basically it has a very heavy Southern influence from being down here in Texas. And, uh, you know, the main riff is actually a country lick that I like. And I was like, this would be cool, uh, playing this and then doing like, kind of like a, a bluesy, uh, grungy type chord uh, with this. And, uh, I wanted, and then I wanted something to be memorable. And I wanted that song to be thematic and kind of take you on a journey you know, I, everybody that I've showed it to, I've showed it to a few people, they always say it reminds them of the Wild West. And I was like, yeah, I can see that. The next tracks are Raise Them Up and All or Nothing, which All or Nothing is one of my, which is another song that connected with me too. Yeah, All or Nothing is basically, uh, it's like uh, my attitude, you know, I want it all or all or nothing, pretty self-explanatory. And basically I'm going to, I wrote it basically, I'm, I'm going to get what I want, you know. And then, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, Raise Them Up is basically just a song. This is just your basic rock anthem, you know, partying, raise the drink up, let's go, have a good time. And the album ends with Without You and Off This, or Off The Track, rather. Yeah, which I thought were both, again, I mean, there's not one weak track on this album. You could tell that this album was, had a lot of work into it and a lot of thought and a lot in, in the, and I think the process that you talk about really benefited you because there is no filler on this album every track is a strong track that was the goal um you know let me I'll touch on what the other two tracks are about and then I'll touch on the whole album stuff um so uh without you you know we every rock record needs a ballad but I didn't want like a really like sappy ballad I wanted something in the vein of like uh in row and also you know have have like almost like a 70s classic rock vibe and obviously there's definitely a nod to Bon Jovi in there um, with you know the 12 string kind of similar to Wanted Dead or Alive but um, you know I wanted a song that was really emotional that you could feel and I could really uh, we really wanted to show off the vocal range on that one 
and then off the track is our is our nod to modern heavy rock. It's our nod to like uh, how you know the, the arena uh, stompers that we have around now. So all in all, you know, then after you know putting this together, I was originally going to call the album Rock and Roll, but I'm like, man. So then I decided like me coming out trying to make a statement, especially with the lead track Rock and Roll, which to me that's released as a first single because I wanted to set an attitude. I wanted to set a precedent. But that's the story of, you know, my life. But also I feel it appeals to everybody because, you know, the chorus, rock and roll is all I know. You know, nine to five is not for me. You know what I mean? Like nobody wants to work nine to five, you know? And we all want to be rock stars. And uh, so I decided, you know, we just call the record, this is rock and roll. Like show everybody, like in case anybody's confused as to what rock and roll is nowadays, no, this record is rock and roll. That's the first thing that I thought of, too, when I heard the first track and heard the album. I mean, it's just a killer album. It's out January of 2020. What are the uh, okay. what are the plans for the release? I mean, I know you talked about a new single coming out. What is, you know, you got basically two months before this comes out. Talk about what you're going to do um, as far as getting this in front of people. So, um Right. The next single is going to be actually not this time. We're going to release it on November 29th. And then I'll probably release the third single in the top of January or two weeks before the record release. The album comes out uh, January 31st. Um, and basically, I'm just working on promotion, building up the fan base, building up the awareness, and seeing where markets develop. And then sometime and probably... Uh, early spring 2020 to the summer, I'll probably, depending on where the markets develop, I'll put together a, a band and I'll probably tour on it. Um, like I'm just not thinking that far ahead just yet. I mean, that will happen. It's just, uh, I want to get, make sure that, you know, the promotion and the marketing, uh, is there and make sure that it gets the marketing and promotion that it needs. With this album that you have coming out and the material that you have, what are some of the frustrations that you have with, you know, I mean, you're sitting on some really good stuff, right? And it's a lot different than it was decades ago where you could find an outlet or you could find something to put this out and, you know, get on a tour and, and you know, get this out in front of people. It's much easier for people to absorb it, either through radio or through MTV, that stuff doesn't exist anymore, you know? So what, you know, what are your frustrations? Cause I've talked to other new bands about this too, as well, about how the, there's really kind of a lack of infrastructure and you kind of, kind of create your own infrastructure to move things forward, to get stuff in front of people. Well, I wouldn't use the word frustration. I would say more or less challenges. And I would just basically say, as like, like you said, there, the, the labeled infrastructure isn't necessarily there for unsigned bands, but a lot of labels now are not going to invest in a band or an artist unless they already have an established following or, or basically in layman's terms, unless they're making money. I mean, it's no different than any investor. An investor isn't going to invest in you unless you're investing in yourself. So, you know, I kind of word it like this. Why am I going to give you, you know, quarter million, half a million dollars if you're not going to put a dollar into your own career, like that's just, that's, that's madness. It doesn't make any sense. So that being said, you know, I would say the challenges are basically competition because of the internet, which is a great thing. You know, you're competing like bands 
need when you put something out online, you're not competing at a local level anymore. You're competing globally. So, you know, back in the day, like you talk about, and I've read up on this stuff, you know, a lot of bands talk about how they made it in clubs in their hometown. Well, they had like something going on there. and Everybody went to that club to see that band. Whereas now, you know, because of, you know, internet and because of, you know, advertising and stuff, you know, that people have a million options versus the few. So the challenge is, is, is marketing and advertising. And I understand bands, some bands don't have the budget or the money. Um, you know, social media is help, but you know, again, it's at all these platforms are ad driven now. So unless you're, you're paying for ads, you're, you're realistically going to go unnoticed unless you're promoting by other means via email list or, or, something to that effect. So I would just say the challenge is, is you can't look at what's been done in the past. You've got to look at today. You've got to look at tomorrow. You've got to look at next week and you've got to evolve with the time. You know, I understand that some of these, and you know, I kind of don't want to get discouraged, but I think these older bands or these more established bands are sending out the wrong precedent by telling bands, you know, rock is dead or they're saying that, you know, the record label infrastructure doesn't exist. And it's like, you don't necessarily need a label. You can be an independent label and you have access to the same platforms the major labels do. You can advertise on YouTube. You can advertise on Facebook. You know, you just got to figure out what's best for you and what works best. And, you know, like I said, going back to these older bands, you know, I I feel like a lot of them don't even advertise. And some of them complain that, you know, oh, the record labels and promote the record or whatever. And it's like a lot of these guys aren't on labels anymore. They completed their contracts and now they're independent. And they might just like it that way. You know, they may not be selling a million records, but they might put out a record that sells, you know, 20,000, 25,000 copies and they're good for the year. You know, Um, I I just, I just look at it from the perspective of adapt and overcome. Like you just got to figure it out. Like all these bands back in the day in the seventies, they figured it out. So you just got to work it. You know, if one avenue doesn't work, you got to try other things. Uh, you know, just what's the expression? You throw it, throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. All right, for such a long time. That's interesting that you say that, you know, because I agree with you a lot of what you say. But I think what really matters most with new music that you're putting out, existing bands are putting out, other new bands, is the fan response, right? I think the fan has not been able to reconnect with new rock music because they're so absorbed with classic rock. And when you look at radio markets, there's no infrastructure for new rock. There's no way for them to absorb it. And being a rock fan, you've got to put in a lot of work these days. You've got to go out and seek it out. It's not just there for you to get anytime you want. Well, it is, but it's not given to you, right? I mean, when we were... When I was younger, you had several radio stations in the market that I grew up in in Chicago. You had MTV. You had other outlets. You had record stores that were playing new releases. You could go and check it out before you bought it. So you had all these avenues to do that. And I think the rock fan, in my opinion, and we've talked about this on other episodes, has gotten lazy, has gotten lazy with appreciating new rock music. And not just new bands and new artists like yourselves. I think also, too, like when you mentioned like bands that are putting out new music, like L.A. Guns put out a new record earlier this year, and the album is killer, uh-huh. right? 
you can't find that anywhere on on radio in in a regular market. You can't find that. You know, you've got to go look for it on YouTube. You got to go look for it on their own fan page. So each band, each artist has to have their own infrastructure to get music out to people. But the fan needs to start listening, and I harp on this all the time. That hey, there's some great new rock music. Christian Shields' new album is great new rock music. You got to listen. And when I hear back, oh, it's not the same. You know, it's not like it's Led Zeppelin. You know, you know, there's no Led Zeppelin of the time. There's no Van Halen. Well, there's not supposed to be, right? There's not supposed to be bands. No, there's not. Yeah. Each band, each era is their own entity, right? It's their own thing. If you're a baseball fan, if you're a sports mm-hmm. fan, right? If you watch the Dallas Cowboys and the Dallas Cowboys won Super Bowls back in the 90s, right? And are you not, are you going to stop being a Dallas Cowboy fan because Emmett Smith's no longer on the team or Troy Aikman's no longer the quarterback? No, you're going to continue to root for your team just like you should continue rooting for rock music, just like you should continue to appreciate new rock music. I mean, that's the essence of it. And when, when people talk about rock is dead, rock's never going to die. Rock is never, you know, there's always going to be people playing rock music where I think rock is on life support is its relevancy on the business side. You know, you know, when you hear of, you know, why aren't, you know, the rock awards presented at the Grammys anymore? They're presented, you know, off television or why is these artists now performing at Super Bowl halftime? Well, it's because fans have abandoned new rock music. And I'm talking, I'm, I'm, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm not just talking about new artists. I'm also talking about like bands like Aerosmith or bands like, um, you know, Kiss even said to, you know, before their end of the road tour, it makes no sense to put out a new record because, you know, people don't want to hear it. And that's an indictment of the rock fan. What are your thoughts on that? My thoughts are this. The fans vote with their wallet. If they like something, they're going to buy it. If they don't, they're not. And right now, you know, uh, you know, because you know, you're saying rock isn't in, it's in a big uh, market share of of the music market, and it's you know, right now all the money is in you know country or it's in it's in pop, and this is where um, you know people are spending their money. That's why it's it's more uh, relative. But I would say, you know, the heart. It, I, I I know you say the fan, but I would still say the bands. You know, people are spoiled now, if you think about it, the device that you hold in your hand, you have the largest store, the largest encyclopedia, you have the largest access to information in the palm of your hand, you know, and there's a lot of competition for people to get heard on that device. Because you can only look at one thing at a time. So I just, again, I just think it comes back to marketing, you know, the bands that stay relevant it's because they're they're always marketing, and yes, certainly there's a nostalgia there with the older arena rock bands, and yes, certainly they're getting airplay on the radio and stuff, but they're still selling. So then that's why they continue to be uh, relevant. So it, it kind of goes hand in hand. And, and this, I, I the problem, I think of it is, I don't think there's really an easy solution or an easy answer. You know, because again, I harken back to the statement. Um, you know, what works for me isn't going to work for you. You know. You know, you just basically, I think bands need to market more. 
And I think fans need to, if they like something, they need to support it, uh, support it more and, and keep it relevant. I would say that would be, it's like a joint partnership. The band doesn't exist without the fans and vice versa. You know, Chris from the band station said something to me um, as we as we ended our interview. He said that the new rock scene is planet Earth, where you can not be just localized anymore. You can connect with people across the globe. And Carl from Lachinga, who was our first guest on the episode or on the New Music Spotlight basically said it's so amazing when you're packaging up CDs and you're sending them out to Spain or South America or wherever. Whereas years ago, that never happened, right? I mean, if you were, if you were in a local scene, you were local until someone national recognized you. You know, I mean, I, I, uh-huh. if, uh-huh. You were, if you were based in Austin like you are now and I'm in Chicago – and you were local, it, it'd be very difficult for me to recognize who you were. But now, with the power of the Internet, that those walls are gone, right? Those boundaries are, are, are no longer uh-huh. there. And I think that's really cool. I think that's, that's a whole new element that is brand new. I, I think where, like you said, I agree that there is no simple solution. I think you know part of it is the fan's responsibility. I think part of it is the band's responsibility. I also think that when you talk about country, country has an infrastructure. You know, whether you like country music or not, you can't deny that, you know, they have their own television channel, you know, the country music television. You know, they have two or three country stations in every market that plays new music. They have older artists that collaborate with newer artists to help them. I don't see that a lot with rock, and I think that is also a part that's missing too is the infrastructure when Christian Shields puts out rock and roll, which is a killer song, right? People should be all over it and people should be like, let's push this through. Let's get this through. Let's get, let's, let's go. And I think there's whole, there's different avenues to do that. I just don't think we figured out as rock fans or the industry or the genre has not figured out how to put an infrastructure together for all these bands who are putting new music to get it out in front of more people. I think a lot of it is up to the bands, like you said. You got to market yourself. You got to have subscriptions. You got to have likes. You got to do all that stuff. And we try our best here at the Hook Rocks to, you know, showcase new artists every week. The fans got to come to it and help pursue those bands, get an infrastructure in place, get an outlet for this new music, so all these bands like yourself, these artists like yourself, can succeed. Well, yeah. I mean, there's no substitute for hard work. Mm-hmm. Um, collaborations are always good. It helps cross over fan bases. You know, I think as far as marketing goes, you've got to go where the people are. Everybody's got a mobile phone. Everybody, you know, looks at it when they wake up in the morning, when they're on lunch break at work, when they come home from work, whatever. So I think that, you know, I mean, obviously it's been around for a decade now and people have been marketing on there forever, but I think that, you know, bands, you know, got to, got to market. You've got to get in front of people and, you know, instead of, I mean, I'm not saying playing shows is important. It is, but you know, you can go downtown and flyer, which most cities don't let you flyer anymore because you get slapped with a litter ordinance or whatever it is. Um, but you know, YouTube is, you know, the best place to discover new music. 
um, people always discover on there. You know, you know, even back when they had MTV, from what I was reading, I mean, this was before my time because I'm only 28. You know, you know, the record labels would compete to show their video more. Like they would pay more money to show the videos on MTV and stuff, and they would get the ad revenue and all that stuff. So, you know, YouTube's no different, and you can also highly target it. So I think bands need to think more in the business sense than music. And I know I'm going to get some slack for that saying, Oh, you're not a real musician. You know, you're trying to do it. For... No, that's not what it is. It's basically, if you want to do this, to sustain yourself as a living. And if you want to pay the bills, then you gotta, you gotta treat it like, you know, you gotta treat it like a small business in a sense. Yeah. I mean, everybody has their own private business and how you get in front of people. It's like, you know, when you had a phone book years ago, you know, how are people going to find you in a, in a, in a phone book and a, a stack of, of pages? How are people going to recognize you? Well, how are people gonna, yeah. Um, and I'm sure the way that they found people in the phone book is you paid for a bit, you paid for a one page ad in the phone book. So they found you and the people that only got like the quarter page ad or the third page ad, I remember those didn't get seen as much. It's no different. It's just, you, it's the person who is the thing, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. You know, the person that makes the most noise gets paid the most attention to. Right. And that can be a negative thing and a good thing. Uh, I just think as far as marketing, like it changes every day because the world's rapidly evolving. And that's why I use that adapt and overcome or survive or, or you die. And, you know, you get the older, older bands. I've heard, you know, Paul Stanley say, you know, he's like, you know, he goes, I'm not worried about record sales because my rent's paid. Well, okay, that's cool. You get it. I mean, I, I, but it's, I don't think that they have a solution. But, you know, Kiss stays relevant because they're always marketing something. And obviously the faces are iconic and all that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, it, you're just, like, people going to just understand that, when, like I said, back to the thing, when you're on the internet, you're competing globally, like you said. Like, even like you are saying, that the, the, the feeling of shipping CDs out to Spain or whatever, the, it, you're, you're global. As soon as you put something online, you're global. You know, everybody all over the world can know what you're doing at the click of a button. And that's why it's so important to, you gotta be careful what you post online and, you know, you gotta make content or you gotta make things that people slash your fans wanna see. It's your brand, basically. Yeah, it's branding. It's branding. And, like, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, people think, you know, record labels, Magic Gatekeeper, well, record labels spend millions of dollars on advertising to break a band so to speak how do you think they get a band notice they advertise the band they don't it's not free they don't have you know they don't, i mean sure they have some channels that they advertise through but it's not it's not as easy as one two three because they could spend you know they spent millions of dollars on bands that flopped that nobody liked so it's not a perfect science and nobody has all the answers it's just you gotta i i think the key is consistency and the key is, uh, yeah, the key is consistency, and I just think it's just marketing. I mean, I keep, I don't mean to repeat myself, but I'm just saying, like, it, it all circles back to one concept. As we end here, um, we'll go back to the record. January 31st. 31st. You know, these next two months, you're going to be building up to, to release that record, release those singles. I wish you the best of luck. I think this material is. Like I said, man, like I told you in direct message, it is the goods. For those listening, if you like ACDC, if you like Kiss, if you like the hooks from yesteryear that just suck you in and pull you in, you're going to like this record. It is pure rock and roll. It is 
Put your fists in the air. Let's have a party. It's good times. I think. I was going to say, now I got to do the plug. So uh, if you go to ChristianShieldsRocks.com, you can pre-order it now on iTunes, Google Play, uh, Amazon. Uh, you can get hard copies from Bandcamp. Um, also, you can you can stream rock and roll on you know all the streaming services. Um, you just got to go to ChristianShieldsRocks.com. It'll link you out to everything. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris underscore Shield twenty three. You can follow me on Instagram at Christian Shield 23. You can follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Christian Shield. And uh, YouTube does not have an official link yet because uh, my subscriber count isn't that high. Um, but if you uh, go to ChristianShieldRocks.com, it will link you out to all that. Awesome, man. Awesome. I appreciate you doing this. It was a great conversation. I look forward to your success and seeing you grow as an artist. I look forward to this album coming out once again, Christian shields. The song is rock and roll. I will be posting it regularly on my Twitter feed and you can listen to it and you can give your thoughts in the comment section. Thanks again, Christian. I really do appreciate it. Once again, this is Jay Scott from the hook rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. And we will talk again soon. Thanks for having me, Jay. achieve the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.